I um, grew up in a family that I say is like a holiday church attender. You know, as a family, a couple times a year, um, it just wasn't a top priority to us. I um, was a full believer, believed I was saved, um, baptized in the church um, in junior high school. Then I met Justin, and he, of course, um, attended church all the time. Um, every time the doors were open, he would say he was there. Um, and at first, I was uncomfortable with that because I didn't know, you know, what that looked like or why we had to be there so much and why he loved the people there because I'd never had that connection. And then once we got married, we attended the same church. Um, but life hit, and we just got wrapped up in building the the ladder, you know, or climbing the ladder for career and um, family and the house and the house payments and the, you know, activities and social um, activities. And, and like I said, we just we just did the church thing, and that's all it was for me. Um, years passed, and we continued down that, you know, road of just attending, not really um, participating. So, and with that happening and life happening to us, um, we hit kind of a rocky road in our in our life and our marriage um, that I wasn't prepared for. I didn't, you know, I, I prayed about things and, and, and read scripture, but it wasn't, there were never answers. Um, and Justin and I had never really ever had done a Bible study together. We never spent time talking about um, scripture. We never spent time talking about what a Christian marriage looks like and what, you know, what there is as far as accountability in each other. And um, we hit a really, really rough patch. Um, and I just knew in my heart there had to be something more for us. That answer that, that you know, everybody says, oh, you have to pray about it. You have to, you know, read scripture and, and things like that. And, and I, I didn't know how to really do that. Um, and we for sure didn't know how to do that together because it was kind of like, oh, are you going to pray? Am I going to pray? Do we pray out loud? Like that was never, was never a priority to us um, to pray together, to ask each other to pray for each other. Um, to, for me to ask him, hey, pray for me. I'm struggling with this today. would have never, ever crossed my mind. Um, I would almost probably be embarrassed to ask him to pray for me. Ironically, at two different occasions, you know, he would mention, um, South City Church and wanting to go to it and visit and um, one Sunday we just said let's do it let's just go and we walked in and I, I was already a little hesitant because we'd already been there we'd been to Temple Baptist Church but I just had this feeling that I, I can't even explain to you honestly I just I mean I'm gonna get teary but I can't I can't explain to you when I walked in the doors just my heart opened up and I had people telling me welcome home um, we're so glad to see you. And and somebody um, told our children, we're so glad you're here today. So good to see you. But to walk in in a, in a place that you were hesitant about visiting and were in a, a, a deep, dark place yourself and your marriage was struggling um, and you didn't know how to fight that battle. You didn't know what was ahead. Um, you knew you wanted more for your marriage. You knew you wanted more for your family. Um, to hear welcome home and, and somebody greet you was amazing. The message was amazing. And through that, it, it just made me realize that there is something about church. There is, it's, it's, it's just an amazing feeling to 
come in and see people that are happy to see you and ask about you and, and give you a hug and know that you're struggling and you can share your struggle. I would have never opened up about us ever having marriage problems in our previous Sunday school. We were just a number, there were 60 of us. Nobody shared anything. Um, we just went along with it. We just played church. The way things have developed and the love we have for each other and the respect we have for each other and the amount of forgiveness and grace we have for each other is unbelievable as to what I thought we were going through years ago. Um, and the love of a church family and the accountability of church family um, and the authenticity and the, gosh, I could name a million different things that helped bring me out of this and helped me figure out how to read the Bible and how to apply what I read to my everyday life, to my life, to my kids' lives. And, and through that, we have the most amazing marriage right now, probably the best we've ever been in 15 years of marriage. And God has shown up big time in our lives and, and rescued us from, gosh, dark places. If there was one thing that, that I could thank God directly for, face to face, for his, his, the love that He has shown Justin and I in our marriage and the grace and the forgiveness that He has given us and um, the ability to to love deeper than ever and um, to teach that to our children. My name is Kim Elrod and this is my story. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? I love Kim's and, and Justin's story. I'm so thankful that, that uh, they were willing to share it with us this morning. They're not here with us. They've, they've done a, a couple's weekend, sort of this weekend. And, and so uh, it was just so sweet and so vulnerable for them to kind of share where they've been and what they've walked through. And the cool thing about God is when we begin to get serious about what he's doing in us, we don't mind telling people what God's doing in us. And we can say, hey, I, I, as I talked to her, and I, you know, I sent her this video and said, hey, are you cool with everything that you've said? And we're going to share this on Sunday. She says, I just pray that somebody, it, you, God uses this, that somebody hears this, that they, they move them in some way in their own walk and in their own life with Jesus. That's the purpose, right? That's why we go through some of the things we go through in our stories and our lives. And it's one of the reasons we're doing this series called Stories. Two reasons, really. One, one is we want to know each other better. And we can't know each other uh, as deeply as we want to unless we know our stories, unless we know some of the struggles we've had and some of the things we've walked through. So we want to share some of those things with each other. But also we want to look at some stories in Scripture. And as we look at those stories, we realize, wait, that sounds like me and I can learn from this story. Or, or if not that, look at who God is in this story and what I can learn about God. He didn't give us a list of definitions or facts about who he, who he is. He gave us his word, and in his word we see stories. And so that's why we're looking at some of these stories this morning. Uh, if you will, turn over in your Bible to ch uh, John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 2 through 11. Now, as you're going over there just for a second, I want to kind of give you a little, 
uh, side note. Some of you are going to look at that text in your, in your Bible, and you're going to see sort of a little side note. Maybe you're going to see double brackets around this section of Scripture. Uh, the reason is, is because this portion of Scripture is not, uh, we don't see this portion of Scripture in many of the early manuscripts of the Bible. And so I thought you would see this in Scripture, and so I could just explain it. So if you saw that and go, well, then why are we reading this today? What's the deal? How, how does this make sense for us, you know? What I want you to understand is, is the deal with this is, and there's a lot of different uh, feelings as to why it was in the Bible early on or, or why it was added later, and there's different reasons and different thoughts about what happened. Uh, you know, obviously, we believe that God's Word is perfect. It was given to us perfect. It was inspired by God to us. But you can also imagine that for 1,500 years, there were humans making copies of His perfect Word, and I believe even in His blessing, He blessed that. But, you know, there's, there's different thoughts on, so was this in the early manuscript that John wrote or was it not? Uh, different people think different things. Some people think that it was, it was in John's early manuscript, but because of some of the issues in the early church, they took it out. They were afraid of what, it was, what they thought it was saying, and then they added it a few hundred years later. Uh, Augustine kind of speaks to that. But there's also people that believe it was added several hundred years later. All I know is this. It's probably in your Bible. I believe it is the inspired word of God, and we can learn so much about who Jesus is and who God is, the theology of who God is through this story. And none of it is divisive in any nature. We, you know, it doesn't cause any sort of factions or anything. It just tells us a little bit more about what we know to be true of God. Okay, I just wanted to put that out there sort of a side note um, this morning. But let's look at it if we can together. John 8, verses 2 through 11. I'll be reading out of the... Uh, English Standard Version here. So it says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple, speaking of Jesus. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his, with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bends down and continues to write on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that this story is included in your word. I believe you've breathed this inspiration into your word, and we have it to learn about your character, about who you are and how you love sinners like me. God, thank you for these people, what they mean to me. Thank you for the church that you're growing and you're building here, Lord. I pray that you continue to do so in, in authenticity and in truth and in grace. And Lord, teach us who it is that you want us to be and give us courage to walk in that. God, may, may we learn from your word now. Lord, I pray, I plead with you that you would give uh, anointing to me, God, that you would speak through me your truth and your word. And that would be exactly what you would have for us today by your grace in Jesus' precious name, amen. 
I love this story. So many different aspects of it. Uh, we see that Jesus has been at the uh, Mount of Olives, it says in verse 1. Um, the Mount of Olives to the temple is kind of like about the distance from like here to Home Depot, you know. There's two sort of mountains, or really they're just sort of big, big hills, really. Um, they're not that big of mountains. The uh, Mount of Olives, he was at, and he comes over through the Kidron Valley over to the temple. And as he does, he sits down to begin to teach people, and people come up and they want to start learning. Well, they're not the only ones that are in the audience, right? There's also some scribes and some Pharisees in the audience. I want to, I want to explain who these people are. The scribes are basically the lawyers of the day. Their focus was to focus on the Word of God, focus on what they knew to be the rules and regulations of, of the Old Testament, uh, of the book of the law, right? That's what their focus was. There was also another group called the Pharisees. Their focus was to, to keep religious purity for the Jews. And so uh, some Pharisees were scribes, some scribes were Pharisees. It was kind of, they, they kind of intertwined in ways. And you see them together a lot in uh, different indictments by Jesus and also different run-ins that he has with the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is one of those. We see that they, uh, they bring this woman before Jesus. And we're going to see sort of why, right? They, they, they want to trip him up. They want to catch him. They want to find some way that they can accuse him of something. And we're going to see kind of how he handles this. Obviously, their focus in this story is not um, textual purity as scribes. It's not religious purity as Pharisees. The text tells us their reason for doing this. The only reason they brought this woman to Jesus is to catch him. It's to catch him. This is the first point on your card this morning that I want to make you aware of. This This is what I want to say. Religion only sees broken rules. It never sees broken people. Religion only sees broken rules. It'll never see broken people. And this is proven by what they're doing. They bring this woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus. And their focus is to catch him. Well, I want you to see something. Thankfully, they're not the only judges in the room that day, right? There's another judge in the room. We're going to see what he does. But they bring him to Jesus, bring her to Jesus. And what they've done is because they, they don't see the woman, they don't see brokenness of people, they only see broken rules, what, what they've done and what we can easily do and what probably we've all done at one point or another is we can put ourselves in the seat of the judge. Have you ever done that? This means yes. You have. It's easy to put yourself in the seat of the judge, Right? It's easy to think, oh yeah, uh, they're the ones who broke the rules. But the truth is, church, we've all broken the rules. Everyone. We've all broken the rules. We've all messed up. None of us are perfect. No one. In fact, I think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins to kind of explain uh, the commandments. And as he does, he's not trying to do away with the commandments. He wants to fulfill the commandments. In fact, the, the scripture says that to, to the jot and tittle, he want every aspect of the commandments that he's given, that the Lord has given to Moses, he wants to be lived out. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is him fulfilling all the way, making it even more full, the truth of that situation. And so he says things like this, the commandments say, it, it, do not murder, thou shalt not murder, right? But Jesus says, he takes it to the nth degree, if you will. He blows it up as much as possible says, It's not just if you murder somebody. He says, if you have anger in your heart, if you say, that guy's stupid, you've committed the act of murder. Can you imagine the gasp in the audience? Well, wait a minute. Jesus, we've all done that. Jesus goes, right. 
Then, and he says, you've heard, you've heard it said in, in the commandments, it, do, not, do not commit adultery. And Jesus says, but I say, I say this, if you even look lustfully at a woman, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery. And you hear the gasp in the audience. Well, everybody's done that. And Jesus says, yeah. What he's doing is he's showing that no one can live perfectly, that we're all guilty, we're all sinners. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, says, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. We, we're all equal in this. We've all broken God's law. We've all messed it up, everyone. And when we place ourselves as judges in that judge's seat, this is what we do. We can easily go, hey, I'm, we're better. I, I'm, at, least I'm not, at least I'm not like them. I'm not like the Pharisees. You ever done that? Sometimes we do it unconsciously, sadly. And we think, well, I'm better. At least I haven't done that sin. Well, I've never, I've, people say this all the time, I've never killed anybody, you know. Kind of proves the point of Jesus going, yeah, but you have been angry. Yeah, you have called somebody stupid. Well, I've never committed adultery. Yeah, but you have looked in someone with lust in your heart. You are guilty. Everyone in this room today, everyone on this planet today is guilty of falling short of God's glory. We've all sinned. And when we place ourselves in the seat of the judge, there's some things that we can do. <laughs> this is the way Jesus puts it. He says in Matthew 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? See the hyperbolic way that Jesus is trying to show this here and get our point, his point across to us. Verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Listen, when we become a judge, the first thing that we do is we forget our own sin. We forget we're sinners. Do you know when, when the Pharisees brought this woman and they didn't bring the man, that was a sinful action because in the Jewish law, both, the, the, both people that are guilty of adultery should be stoned. They've already sinned. They, they don't see their own sin. And when we become a judge of other people, we, it's like we've forgotten our own sin. We need a mirror instead of a pointing finger, don't we? God, would you show me? If we're, we're burdened about somebody's sin, it ought to be ours. God, show my heart where I've broken your law. Show me where I've done the things that you don't approve of. Show me those things because I promise you they're in your heart. But how often do we instead, not me, we look at everyone else and we begin to judge and in doing so, we forget that we're sinners. Well, then when we forget that we're sinners, the second thing that we do, Jesus says in this passage, is we become hypocrites. And when we become a hypocrite is somebody that, that expects you to do something but is not going to do it himself, right? Expects you to do something, but you're not going to do it. You're not going to live the way you want somebody else to live. Jesus says that's what happens. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What happens, though, is when we become blind to our own sin, we forget it. We become hypocrites. 
We then can use our lofty spiritual positions as leaders or, or, or whatever the case may be without conscience. And listen, this is scary. This is scary, and we're seeing the effects of it in our country. We're seeing the effects of it in families. When we become blind to sin, we judge other people, we become hypocrites, and we have no conscience whatsoever. I'll just do whatever I want to do. It's dangerous, church. It's dangerous. Now, there's no question that this woman who's been brought before the Pharisees, uh, before Jesus, the Pharisees have brought to him, she's been used before by men. She's been used for selfish gain before, but now she's being used by the Pharisees. Like I said, not for textual purity and not for religious purity, but to trap Jesus, to trick him, to find a way to accuse him of something. They, they've caught her in the act. Do you notice that? Listen, this is kind of like the tango. It takes two to tango, right? I guess. I don't really tango that much. It takes two to tango. There's two people who are guilty in this sin, and yet only the woman is brought? Is that fair? Is that right? Why is she the scapegoat? Why is she the one that's only going to be, that's going to be held accountable for the sin of two people? It's because she's been set up. You don't catch people in the act of adultery unless you set them up. So just think about this. The Pharisees have so forgotten their own sins have so become hypocrites and blind to their own issues that they now can, without conscience, set this woman up to try and accuse Jesus of something. They've set her up. Who knows what's happened? Who knows who they've paid off? It could be one of them. You won't be in trouble, brother. This is just going to be her. We'll just get her. And how often do we see that play out in our country and in our society all the time? Where is her partner in crime? How does he escape? Because listen, this is the exact, this is the definition of a double standard, if there ever is one. He's just as guilty as her, and yet she's the only one brought. She will be the scapegoat. You know, evil people have used their lack of spiritual awareness, their, their blindness to their own sin, They've used these things since the beginning of time to manipulate and control other people. No question. But, but lately it seems like it's all over the place. You go home and you turn on the news and you're going to hear about somebody taking advantage of someone else. When I was looking at this this week, I couldn't help but think about the, the Me Too, the, the hashtag Me Too sort of movement that's happened. And this is being politicized. All these things are being politicized. My desire today is not to politicize anything. I'm just talking about humanity, the brokenness of humanity. But many women and girls have the, the vulnerability and the willingness to come forward and share something that happened to them, some sort of sexual abuse. And they're encouraging others to do that. You know, I read this week that 80% of women have been sexually abused. 80% of women have been sexually abused. I saw that statistic and I wept. Because I'm a daddy of two little girls. It's not right. And I pray with all my heart that God would forgive us and change this place and make us aware of our own sin so that this would stop. We see recently the sexual abuse of a thousand children by 300 priests in one state, Pennsylvania. 
A thousand children sexually abused by 300 priests in one state. The stories of abuse and manipulation and privilege and control, they are endless. They're endless from the beginning of time until now. They're all over the place. And they're wrong. And at this place, I was writing and I was praying and all I could do is write, God, forgive us. God, forgive us. May we have the awareness to see our own sin for what it is. That we would seek accountability. We'd look like Jesus in this story, have a heart for this woman. To encourage her, to heal her, to help her, to equip her. That was his heart. And my prayer is that we could learn from that even today. Does it mean you have to be perfect in the church to call somebody sin out? No. No. But it does mean the condition of your heart has to be different. What was the condition of their heart? It wasn't good, right? It was bad. But we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, that in the church, we're called sometimes to call people out in their sin. But Jesus is saying this, don't let the sin in your life be so great that you can't see it, but you're going to call somebody else's out. But if he says, he says there's an opportunity, but if you can get that log out of your eye, if you can deal with the sin in your own life, then maybe you can be used to help somebody else who's struggling. Here, I want this to sort of be just a rule of thumb for us at South City Church, and it's this. We should only call somebody out if we have a desire to lift them up. We should only call somebody out if we have a desire to lift them up. If your heart is to hurt, shame, just keep your mouth shut. Don't point. Instead, look at a mirror and say, God, help me because I need help because I'm a guilty sinner in need of a gracious Savior. Here's the second point this morning. The Pharisees thought that they had trapped Jesus with a perfect plan. Man, they had a perfect plan. Let me show you why. If Jesus in that moment would have said, yeah, she, she did commit adultery, stone her. If he followed through with Jewish law, then they would have said, oh, we got you. Because you can't, uh, Jews couldn't fulfill capital punishment unless they went through the Roman system. It's the reason Jesus was crucified by Romans. They had to go through the Roman system for that type of capital punishment. So they could have taken him to the Romans. He'd have been caught. But if Jesus said, uh, no, 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 let's... I know she did, but let's not, let's not stone her. Then he would have been against God's law. You see that? They could have taken him to the Sanhedrin and said, well, you said, don't, you said don't stone her, but it clearly says in God's word that adulterers should be stoned. He was, he was caught. How was Jesus going to deal with this situation between these two things? Now, the thing I want us to also be aware of here is this. This woman wasn't just a victim of abusive power to try and trap Jesus. Sometimes we can see that and only see that. I also want you to see this. She was also an adulterer. She was caught in the act of adultery. And I want to say this about adultery, just for us as a church. God hates adultery. He hates adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is when uh, people who are married... Uh, have unlawful sex, or they're engaged to be married, have unlawful sex. This is why God hates adultery, because it ruins marriages. It ruins families. It ruins lives. It ruins churches. It ruins communities. 
He hates it. And what's maybe even a worse indictment is the fact that it, it, it messes with the beauty of the metaphor of, of God and his bride. You heard that? Paul even said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's this beautiful metaphor of God and his church. And when there's adultery in a marriage, it distorts the image of God that he's placed in a marriage. Every time I do a wedding, I talk about this beautiful, beautiful story and metaphor that, that God has his bride. And when there's adultery in a relationship, it distorts that beautiful, beautiful picture that we have she wasn't just a victim. She was guilty. She was guilty. She knew she was guilty. She knew she would be stoned. Adultery is punished by stoning in, in the Jewish law. So what would Jesus do? He's caught. No matter what he does, how can he answer and not be trapped? Well, Jesus bends down. <laughs> I love this. He, he bends down and it says that they're continuing to ask him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You ever had people like that? Drive you crazy? Here's a good rule. He just ignored them. Or you could just ride in the sand. That'll throw them off a little bit, you know. And maybe that, I don't know. We don't know what he wrote in the sand. But he leans down. And he starts to write something in the sand. We don't know what happens, but I want, you, I want you to see this. Jeremiah 17, 13 says this. Look at how prophetic this is. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. We don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand, but clearly the scribes and the Pharisees have forsaken him. Maybe he's writing their names. Right, he knows how many hair are on their head. And so maybe he knows their names. So maybe he's writing their names in the sand. And they're sitting there going, wait, that's my name. Then he stands back up and what does he do? This is so interesting. He goes back to Jewish law. He's going to use the very thing they're trying to trap him with to show them who wrote it, right? Jesus says, well, here, here guys, let's do this. Whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone, which is a Jewish law. If you had an accusation against somebody, you had to bring that accusation before the group of people to make the accusation. You also had to be the first one to throw the stone. But for some reason, if they found out it wasn't true, I want you to know that they could reverse that on you and they could stone you. This is a serious moment. This accusation is serious. And Jesus using the law against them is perfect, isn't it? Well, let's do this. Those of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. Let's do that. And then he bends down again. And what if Jesus, under each of their names, began to write some sin that they were each guilty of? What if he wrote under their names the name of their mistresses, the name of their broken lives? Whatever he wrote, <laughs> it got their attention. Because the text says that from the oldest on down, they begin to drop their stones and walk away. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, one thing that is so clear for me is my sin. Just as I've matured in the Lord, as I've gotten older, I know how desperate I am for the cross of Christ and forgiveness in my life. And maybe that's, I don't know. 
But the text says the oldest on down begin to drop their stones and walk away. And then Jesus is left alone with the woman. This is where we get the title of our message this morning. A guilty sinner and a gracious savior. Just, just can you picture this poignant moment? This woman who's guilty standing before Jesus and the first thing he says to her is full of dignity. It's full of respect. He says, woman. May not mean a lot to you, but I want you to know it's the exact same thing he calls his mother in John 2 at the, at the wedding at Cana. He calls this woman the same thing he called his mother, and I promise you he treated his mother with respect and dignity. And in the same way, he sees that in her. This may be the first man. Jesus may be the first man that she's been able to look into his eyes and him not have some selfish, ulterior motive. This may be the first person she's been alone with that she can trust completely. And she stands naked before the Savior. He doesn't see her nakedness. He doesn't see her shame. He doesn't see her sin. He sees her the way God created her. He sees her the way he created her. He sees her worth. He sees her purpose. He sees her created in his image. And this beautiful moment is not missed by this, this woman. <laughs> she knows what he's done. She knows what he saved her from, right? He stands before and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She knows what has happened. He has rescued her from a death sentence. He saved her life. She knows that. And her answer proves it because she says, no one, Lord. Listen, anybody who comes to know Jesus as their Savior, at some point they had to look at their lives and realize that he wants to save us from a death sentence. He wants to rescue us from hell. And if you can acknowledge that, you can receive him as Savior. She, she realizes that. No one, Lord, you've saved me. And Jesus says this to her. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. She says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now I want you to, to see something here that's very important. Jesus, when he stood up, he said, hey, those of you without sin, you cast the first stone. And they all went away. Why? Because they had sin in their lives, and at least they acknowledged it. Who doesn't have sin in his life? Jesus. Jesus is the only one actually worthy to stone this woman. He's the only one that actually with a legal right could pick up a stone and stone this woman. Legally, he could have done that because there was no sin in his life. And yet he's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't just say neither do I condemn you. He says something else. He says, now go and from now on sin no more. I, I want to focus on this just for a moment. When you live your life as a believer in Jesus, I want you to know there's this thing that we have to do if we're going to live it appropriately. And that is, have you ever seen those guys that, that there's that one guy that does the, the tightrope, you know, he does it in crazy places and gives us all heart attacks every time, you know what I mean? But they, they walk on this tightrope, uh, you know, that deal. And then sometimes they use that big balancing pole, you know what I mean? 
it helps them balance so that they can go across places easier. Well, listen, we have one of those in, in our walk with Jesus. In fact, on one side is grace, and on the other side is truth. And church, I promise you, listen, if you get too grace heavy and truth is minimized in your life, you will fall off and you will not please God because what you'll say is, I can do anything I want. There's grace. God gives me grace. I can be whoever I want. I can say whatever I want, do whatever I want, and truth is minimized in your life. Or if you, you maximize truth and you minimize grace, then you start to become a Pharisee and a judge, and you want to judge everybody for the rules because you're keeping the truth. And then you're worried. You're full of fear because how am I going to keep all these rules? How am I going to do all these things perfectly? And it's out of whack, but church, if we could just get it balanced, a life of truth and grace that we walk in. We know we're covered by God's grace, but we go and sin no more. We, we walk in the truth of who he is and who we need to be in him. God will give us a life that is balanced and fruitful. And this is exactly what Jesus says to the woman. He shows her grace and gives her truth. Look at John 1, 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we see this played out in this story, I think maybe better than any other story in scripture. This woman was guilty. Yes, she was a victim. Someone was trying to use her for selfish gain. Yet she was guilty of the sin of adultery, and according to the law, she deserved death. And guess what? According to the law, I deserve death. According to the law, you deserve death. But he doesn't condemn her. Clearly, he is a God of forgiveness, a God of grace. He doesn't, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, Scripture says. So when he says, Neither do I condemn you. I want you to see something. Jesus is not going, hey, no big deal. You see the difference? He's not going, hey, no big deal. Don't worry about it. He doesn't treat her as her sins deserve. Her sins deserve death. He gives her grace. That's what grace is. When God gives you, <laughs> he doesn't give you what you deserve. That's grace. But then he says, go and sin no more. That's the truth. How should she live? He doesn't just, quote, let her off the hook. See, all of our sins, every single one of them, requires payment. Every single sin has to be paid for. Why? Because God is a holy God. He is just. And every sin must be paid for. And what is it paid for with? Death. Paid for with death. The good news this morning is you get to choose. You can choose Jesus' death on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he bore our sins on the cross so that we might be forgiven. You get to choose. Lord, I want you to bear my sins on the cross or you can pay for your sins eternally in hell. It is a real place where punishment is made for sins. And I suggest that we trust Jesus 
He wasn't just winking at the sin. He wasn't just going, no big deal. He knew in that moment when he said, neither do I condemn you. He knew that her sin would be paid for. He would pay for it. It would be paid for in his blood and not hers. Ours is paid for in his blood and not yours, not mine. This morning, I just, as I close, I just got to ask you this question. Have you stood before this Savior the way she has? Because he stood before, she stood before Jesus, listen, naked, full of shame, full of brokenness. She had nothing to cover herself, which is an awful feeling. If you allow your mind to go there, you can't hardly stand it. And when I was thinking about this, I thought about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, uh, they committed sin. And then the Bible says that they hid and ran from God. And, of course, God shows up to meet with them. What have you done, God says. And he sees them, and they're naked. And what have they done? They've tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That won't work. So what does God do? How does he cover them? How does he cover their nakedness? <laughs> we see the first death in all creation in this moment. God slays an animal, and he covers their nakedness with the skins of that animal. It's the shedding of that animal's blood that covers them. And in the same way, our sins can only be covered by the shedding of the blood of Jesus. Because otherwise we stand naked. We got nothing to cover. So there's nothing that'll, that'll do the trick. We are guilty. We are found guilty with nothing to change the situation apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus. Have you stood before the Savior? Have you recognized your sin and said, yeah, I'm caught? God, I've got nothing to cover up this brokenness in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. Have you accepted that grace? Because Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, and he lets her go. So many of you this morning, most of you probably would even say, yeah, I've, man, I, I've done that. I've, I've acknowledged my sin, and I've accepted his grace, and I, I know Jesus as my Savior. Praise God. But have you done the other part? Do you live your life in truth? Do you live your life obeying Christ? Because he said, now go, and from now on, sin no more. Is that possible? <laughs> well, with his grace, it is. Many of us in this room this morning, I don't know who you identify with in this story. You might identify with a woman and say, yeah, I've been a sinner. I've been broken. I've done some, so many things I wish I didn't do. And I know, I, I just stand before a holy God, guilty, ashamed, and I need him to cover me. I need him to forgive me. You might identify with the woman. You might identify with the Pharisee and say, well, actually, if I'm honest, I'm always calling people out for their sin and not looking at my own. I'm the rule keeper. In fact, I wear myself out all the time worried about the rules. Am I keeping the rules? Am I following everything just perfect? Am I doing it right? You identify with the Pharisees. Maybe some of you in this room identify with the man who got away, but he really didn't get away. We're accountable for everything that we do. God sees that addiction. He sees that pornography in your life. He sees that alcohol or drug addiction. He sees the way you're treating your family. He sees that selfishness. He sees that brokenness that we all have. No one escapes. And yet we have a choice this morning. We get to choose. Jesus, I want you to take my sin. 
I can't, I can't do this on my own. There's nothing I can bring. I can cover myself with nothing. Would you cover me? Would you help me to live in grace and in truth so that I can honor you with all of my life? Can I just tell you, listen, I ask people sometimes, are you struggling with sin? People's first inclination is to go, no, 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 I don't struggle with sin. Listen, I would rather you say absolutely. Because we're all sinners. And either you're struggling with it or you're not and you've become complicit to it. Struggle with sin. Wrestle with the sin in your life. Let the Spirit of God lead you. Let, it, let him free you from these things, these chains. This is part of the purpose of the church, that we live lives accountable to each other, that we live confessional lives. And can I just put this little commercial in there for small groups? Don't just, don't just do the surface thing in your small group. We need each other. We need to be real with each other. We need to help each other. We need to take specks out of each other's eyes. We do. We need to, to encourage each other to live in truthfulness and repentance. Don't settle for surface. And I guess the last thing I want to leave you with this morning is the good news that God not only forgives us of our sin, he purifies us. He justifies us. I remember the elementary way to remember that, right? He justifies us. You know what that means? He makes it just as if I never sinned. You remember that? See, Sunday school is a good thing. It, it works. God not only forgives you, he justifies. This is what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. Some of your Bibles say purify us from all unrighteousness. God not only forgives you of your sins, it makes us, he makes it your life as if you never sinned. He redeems you. There's hope. We can leave here today with a smile on our face because God forgives us and he makes us new. Hallelujah. Praise God that he changes us and he doesn't only just change us, he makes us new. This morning we're going to sing a quick song and I'm going to be down front here and maybe you're identifying with one of these people in the story, whoever it is. They're all sinners. Whoever you are, you're a sinner. In the need of the grace of Jesus and the truth of his word and how to live. So may we balance that correctly to honor him with all that we are and become all that he wants us to be as he purifies us from all that we've done by his grace and his goodness. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we are all this woman. We are all found guilty standing before a holy God. And though you have a right to punish, God, though you have a right to do this, by the law that you've written, in your grace you say, neither do I condemn you. And you give us a chance, God. You give us forgiveness, but it's not free forgiveness, Lord. You've paid for it with your own blood on the cross. So may we not minimize sin in our lives. May we not say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Because it is a big deal. You died for the sin. You paid for everyone. And God, if there's one person in this room today that doesn't know you as Savior, that stands before you as that woman did, or as those Pharisees did, or as the man that thinks he got away, God, may they hear the truth of your word today that we all need your grace and your truth.
And may we fall at our face, God, and fall at your feet and say, Lord, don't condemn me. Save me. Change me. Give me grace and send me on my way with truth that I might live for you and serve you, God. Lord, help us today. We are imperfect people in need of that grace and need of a church that will remind us of truth. And may we walk with those two as a balancing beam to keep us centered in a healthy life in you, knowing you, loving you, serving you, trying to live a holy life, God, that honors you, that can only be done because of the grace of Jesus. Lord, move in this place by your spirit. Draw us to yourself. May we receive the love that you've given her. In Jesus' precious name, amen.